Father in heaven, we come before you as a people, Lord, boldly before your throne of grace, knowing that there is grace right now for this time of need. Lord, that you want to encounter each person specifically in their circumstances, Lord. You're wanting to show up strong in their life to demonstrate who you are. Lord, show your goodness and demonstrate it through their life that the world might know that Jesus really is Lord. God, I thank you for that. So I'm asking this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would release revelation, that you would reveal Jesus among us, that people would see and know him more, that your word would be unlocked to us and our hearts would be awakened, that we would see and know you, Lord, in ways that we haven't before. I thank you for that revelation to transform our lives, and Lord, I thank you also for a spirit of wisdom, Lord, that we would know exactly what to do with that that uh, the world around us could be impacted, that more than just us would be touched, Lord, but the world would be transformed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, good morning to you. Uh, Today is my 24th wedding anniversary. My beautiful bride is sitting on the front row up here. Uh, Nicole, you have always been stunning. My whole life, I have had a crush on you. And uh, seventh grade, seventh grade, it started, telling you. So, uh, you know, I just love you so much. Uh, The best decision my entire life was marrying you. Yep, by far. The the greatest uh, privilege it is to be your husband and uh, get to partner with you in life. And just no better thing. So, yeah, thanks for sticking with me. Yeah. If you don't know her, you should. She is the most amazing person in the world. Um, um, I said this first service, but I just want to just uh, repeat again for the sake of those who are here. You know, marriage is a covenant. You know, a, a marriage is not a, a commitment. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. A covenant is an unbreaking, unbreakable. It, it is putting two lives together in such a way that they're not able to be separated. It's not, it's not a, an agreement of uh, convenience at all. In fact, it costs you your life to make this choice. You no longer exist. You've joined your life to another person in a permanent way. One of the reasons that, uh, that marriage is so powerful is that you can't get out of it. It isn't something that's just optional. You know, the, the power of a marriage will transform your life the covenant will transform your life. You know, when, when you uh, said yes to Jesus, when, when his blood purchased you, aren't you glad it wasn't a moment of convenience? Aren't you glad that on your worst day he didn't just blow out of town and say, well, you know, you violated our agreement, I'm out. Aren't you glad that it was a covenant and not a contract where you violate your side of the deal and he's gone? You know, one of the reasons why it's so powerful, obviously there's many reasons why the covenant of Christ, the new covenant is so powerful, many reasons, transforming agents, but one of the reasons it's so powerful is that it's permanent, that he's sticking with you, that he's in this, that there is no parting, that there's no separation, that he is in it for the duration, and because of that, you're going to work it out. Because of that, you're going to change. He's unchanging, so one of the parties is going to change, and it's not him, <laughs> okay? He's in it. He's purchased you. You belong to him. He's, you're in this. You are his bride. He's not going to depart from you, and because of that, you are going to be transformed. A marriage is a process of transformation. It's not an agreement of I get to deal with your stuff and you get to deal with my stuff. It's a covenant between two parties and the result will be that you will both be transformed by this covenant. The covenant itself does all the heavy lifting. That means you can stop trying to change your partner. That's a word for all you young people in here. Listen, the first 10 years, you try to change the other person. Like, you're just convinced you are the gift to them. (laughs) 
I'm here to help you become a better person. No. Listen, it's a covenant itself. The fact that it's not an ending, it's not something that you're not going to separate. You can't pull apart. I know in the world standards that you can, but listen, the covenant, if you'll allow the covenant to do the heavy lifting, your lives will be transformed and the marriage will work. It's when people get about the business of trying to change each other and holding power and control over each other and threatening one another as if you'll leave if they don't. Listen, all that's nonsense. Stop that. If you're a Christian and you're doing that, stop it. Stop it. Allow the covenant to do the heavy lifting, y'all. Allow your marriage to be transformed because it really is till death do you part. Instead of threatening one another and trying to control one another and don't do any of that stuff. Allow this reality that it really is a forever partnership. If you're stuck in it with them forever, nothing can happen here that's going to separate us. If you're in it, then you're going to change. You're going to realize. You're going to work it out. You're going to have to. And that stuff that you're facing right now, boy, a little bit of time will pass, and you'll look back and you go, man, what was all that about? I wonder why we were so mad at each other. Just allow the covenant to do the heavy lifting. Are you alive this morning? <laughs> like a quarter of you. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this church doesn't exist if that covenant didn't. Your, your pastor wouldn't be here if it, that covenant didn't hold up its end of the bargain. More than one time, my life has been transformed and changed by the power of a covenant. Yours too. Listen, um, I, I don't know who's in this room today. I don't know if there's marriages in trouble. More than likely there are, looking at the crowd size like this, someone online listening. Uh, it's way too easy to part ways. That no-fault no divorce clause in 1970 did, did not do you a service. The ability just to bail for no reason didn't help. There are... There's power and there's transformation available to you, and the grace of God is here for you. So if you're in a situation where you're going, man, I might, I think I just want to be done. I don't, it's not worth it. You know, uh, I want you to reconsider today. I want you to allow the Lord an opportunity to maybe step into your situation and uh, bring transformation. You alive? So I, I want to pray for the marriages today. It's not the sermon topic, but I do want to do that right now. Um, so would you just put a hand on your heart? If you're married this morning, um, and you find yourself, maybe you're in an amazing marriage. Praise God. Um, anybody who has suffered through divorce, listen, this isn't, there's no condemnation. I'm not, I'm not banging on anybody. If, you, if, if you've gone through a divorce, you know the pain of it, and you know how hard it is, and you know how destructive it is. If you've gone through it, nobody would wish that on anybody. And so there's no condemnation or release that from you. Don't, be, don't feel condemned by that. But this is a divorceless church. This is a church where the covenant stands, where there's power for transformation, that we hold to it. There's power to bring reconciliation, even if things have gone so bad, that Jesus can reach into your situation and you can turn it all around. So, Father, I bless the marriages this morning. I bless the covenants. I bless the hands and the feet of this body that, that they would find fulfillment and connection to one another and these marriages would find uh, life and there would be reconciliation and where there's been brokenness that they would be healed and where there's been destruction that the blood of Jesus would come and that miracles would take place. God, I thank you for divine protection and provision, Lord, that your hand would be upon each and every one of them and that you would give them wisdom, Lord, and how to walk this out in practical ways, God. No magic wand. Listen, I'm not proclaiming a magic wand. I'm saying to you that the covenant really does have power, though. You should lean on it. Lord, I pray for the power of the covenant to be released in these marriages, that kids would... Uh, be raised in households where moms and dads love each other and that woundedness from that from brokenness would be gone, Lord, from our from the generations. Thank you for that, Lord. So I just bless. I bless the marriages in this house. I bless the holy union between husband and wife. I bless 
their, uh, their covenant and their connection in Jesus' name. And pray, Father, for generations to come that this would be um, not just an institution, Lord, but that it would, uh, that, that it would truly uh, be transformative, that it would shine with the light and glory of heaven. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. No. You're, <laughs> you're not sure. That was, that's fine. It's kind of funny. Hey, I want to talk to you today about fear. About fear. About the issue of fear, how rampant it is in our society right now, and the ramifications, what it causes us to do. I want to talk to you today about the fact that fear is a liar. That fear is not a voice worth listening to. That fear is not a good counselor. That when you are facing a decision, if fear is talking in your ear, that's not a voice you should listen to. That even if you end up making a wise decision, the best decision out of your options, you know, you got options A, B, and C, and you're looking at them, and you're looking at the situations, and even if you end up picking the very best option for your life and for your circumstances, if you were in fear, it's still the wrong choice. And the reason it's the wrong choice is because fear will rob you of having peace. You will always second guess whether it was the right decision or not. Fear will keep you from being able to enjoy the fruit of making a good decision. So you could make the choice that's the best choice for your family, the best choice for you, the best choice for your career, and you did it, and it's like a good choice, but because you were in fear, you're having second guesses, and you're wondering whether it was a good choice or not, and though even though there is good like, results from the decision, because your peace was robbed from you, you won't be able to enjoy the fruit of that decision. You'll always wonder, did I make the right choice? I find that uh, there are couples that experience this, you know, just because we're talking about marriage, that someone will, they, they, they asked, will you marry me? The other person said yes, and now the person is having second thoughts. That second thoughts is based in fear, and that fear will undermine the confidence in their union and eventually will lead to a very broken situation. That fear itself will undermine your peace and will keep you, it will rob you. Fear is a terrible counselor. When you have fear, it destroys the ability to enjoy any of the results of a good decision. Fear is a liar. Fear is a scheme that the enemy uses in order to steal joy from your life. Fear's a terrible counselor. You, even though you might uh, make a good decision because of fear, the confidence that would have had you feeling good, all of a sudden you feel like you're on shaky ground and it undermines your ability to take next steps. And then when you go to make a decision based off of the one you made, you won't be able to do it. You'll be paralyzed by it. Repeat after me. Fear is a liar. In the scriptures, there are over 80 times where we're counseled, do not fear. And that is in the negative sense, do not do this. In the positive sense, we have God also saying to his people, be strong and courageous. Right? In other words, I need you to rise up, not in fear, but in courage to go for it. So while we're counseled in one direction, don't do this thing. We're also counseled in the other. You must be courageous. You need to own this decision. You need to rise up and go for it wholeheartedly. Why is that? Because fear will steal from you. The enemy will use fear to steal, to kill, and to destroy future hope. There's one type of fear, the fear of the Lord, that is considered good. The reason that the fear of the Lord is good is because when you have the fear of the Lord, you are considering that one day you will stand before his judgment seat. 
and that your decisions will be put on display, that he is going to judge whether you made good choices or not. He's going to judge every careless word and action. It will pass through the fire. You're going to find out whether you did things his way or you did things your way. You're gonna find out whether your life was lived for eternity or if it was lived for something selfish. If it was motivated by fear or if it was motivated by love. You're gonna find out And because you consider that the judgment seat of the Lord, that my life is accountable unto God, because I consider that, the fear of the Lord now counsels me in what decisions I should make. That's the good kind of fear. It's the same experience. What are you fearing? What are you afraid of? I actually would counsel you and say to you, you should be afraid of God. You should. You should have trembling in your heart. You should not just be callous and just flippant towards your creator. To fall into the hands of the living God is a terrible thing, Paul said. It's something to be considered with fear and trembling. And when you do, it allows you to look at your life and go, wait a second. I can't just live for me. I can't just live for emotional passion. I can't just live for an agenda. I must live in light of eternity, in light of an eternal God, in light of his truth. The fear of the Lord will give you wisdom. The fear of anything else will give you terrible counsel. Today, I want us to talk about this subject because the world right now is just rampant with it. It's in everything. And it's speaking to you in, speaking to you in the media, it's speaking to you in politics, it's speaking to you in medicine, it's speaking to you everywhere right now. Fear is a driving motivator for, you know, a lot of what's going on in our world right now. And it would be impossible. You would literally have to be hiding under a rock not to be affected by this stuff right now. It's out there, and the voice of fear is in everything. And the Christian is not supposed to live or make decisions based on fear. You are to be courageous. You are to be strong. You are to live by faith. Not in reaction to what could be going wrong, but rather to live conscious of a God who is large and in charge, to intentionally live your life in faith. Fear undermines these things. I don't want to get sidetracked into the side issues. In fact, I'm going to intentionally stay away from making too many personal applications. I'm going to stay away from drawing too clear of conclusions for you because first, hey. (laughs) Because number one, If I make conclusions too clear, then you'll turn your brain off and you'll just either agree with me or disagree with me, okay? But number two, we're needing the Holy Spirit to bring clarity and conviction into our hearts, especially around this issue. Because I don't know all the little decisions, I don't know all the little foxes that are actually eating away at the fruit of your life, but I can tell you that if fear is a motivator in any of them, that you're not experiencing the kind of life and joy that you're supposed to. There's more. You don't have to be paralyzed in this moment of history. You're, you're created to live in joy and power. The resurrection of Christ is something that lives in us and through us that this is, we're supposed to be living a powerful life, not one in reaction to the time. Right? We get to write the story. We're not reacting to one. My prayer to you today, for you today, is that the Holy Spirit would illuminate these passages of scriptures and that he would shine his light in your heart and that you would see the root of some of the things that's going on and that you would be liberated. So we're going to use three passages of scripture this morning and um, attempt to keep it in that realm so that the Lord speaks to you and Frankly, I don't get myself in trouble. All right. We're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. This is the story of the death of wisdom. 
If you know the, uh, the story of the kings, the prophets and kings, we have Israel emerging and desiring to have their own king. And God raises up a man named Saul to be their first king. And he is anointed king, and he leads the best that he can. But when it comes time to transition the, na- the nation from one leader to the next, Saul ends up afraid of the, his successor. Saul sees that God is blessing a little shepherd boy named David, and that God's anointing is resting on David. And Saul is threatened by it instead of embracing it and being excited about the future of Israel. He sees it as a threat to his own ministry, his own life, his own legacy. And so he ends up trying to kill David instead of embracing and raising the promise in his household. Instead of seeing the future, being excited about it, and then discipling the future, instead he tried to kill it because he saw it as a personal threat to his own fruitfulness. How many times in life do you see somebody else doing well and you become jealous by it? You become fearful of it? Listen, if you got somebody in your department at work and they're doing better than you are, and you were up for the promotion before, but now you have somebody doing better, and they're younger, and they're whatever, how are you feeling about them? You excited about that? You looking forward to when you're going to work for them? See, what I just illustrated for you is called scarcity. Scarcity is when you believe that if somebody else receives something good, that it somehow has taken away from you also receiving something good. That if somebody else does well, then it steals away from the potential of you also doing well. That if somebody gets, let's say they they launch a business and they do well and they earn a good income in life and things are going well for them, that somehow them receiving more means that there's less for you to receive. That if somebody is blessed over here, that means there's not enough for me to be blessed as well. This is a scarcity mindset. It's the mindset that if God gives to you, that it it leaves less for me. That mindset robs people. It's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Just because somebody is blessed and things are increased, it does not mean that there's less for you. God is an eternal God. God has the ability to provide above and beyond. God's not limited by the finite. If God's blessing shows up in someone's life, it doesn't mean that there's less for you. The scarcity mindset will put you in fear. See, in your work scenario, you look at this person who's doing well and you go, oh man, they're gonna take my opportunity, but you don't realize that your boss was already gonna split the departments and he was gonna put you as the supervisor over both departments and blah, blah, blah. You couldn't see. You couldn't see that there was another opportunity available. You couldn't see that in your own fruitfulness that God was making a way for you. But if you begin to view things through scarcity, then you'll begin to fight against that person doing well and you'll prove that you can't be trusted supervising them and you'll eliminate your opportunity as well as see them get promoted and you out. See how that worked? Scarcity is rooted in fear. Fear there won't be enough. Fear that if somebody else experiences something good, that, that means that I won't experience something good. Fear that if somebody has one experience over here, that it is in going to directly affect me. Fear will rob you. Saul looks at David and he sees a threat. He doesn't see a promise. He sees what he's going to lose not what Israel's going to gain. He sees that his son, Jonathan, will probably never be king. And so he looks at David as a threat, and he's afraid of him, and as a result, he tries to kill him, and Saul spends the rest of his life pursuing the death 
of David instead of leading a nation. So instead of fulfilling his calling in life, he ends up pursuing trying to take away the calling of another. Oh, man. David is made king, and David's a warlord king. He's a battler. He's the warrior. Everybody likes David, right? David's the guy who chucks a rock at a giant and then lops off his head and carries the head around the rest of the day, you know? <laughs> You've read that story. It's hilarious. I mean, it's terribly morbid. But, like, if you're like that warrior, you know, attitude person, like, David spends the rest of the day carrying Goliath's head around. Hey, this is David. He's our new champion. Hi, this is Goliath, you know, like, <laughs> that's like David. David is made king, and he's this prophet, priest, and king. He's a worshiper, and he's super passionate, and he's just out there, right? And once David becomes king, he's a warlord king, and he sets out to destroy the enemies of the Lord. And so he goes to war everywhere. He's advancing the borders of Israel, and he's removing the enemies, and he's, he builds Jerusalem. He, he's, he's doing all of this outward activity, advancing, advancing, advancing. He's, he's the guy that we cheer on because we can see the warrior in him, and the, you know, it's the kick-butt take names. You can cheer for him. You can see very clearly, he's on God's side, and everyone else is against, and ah, you know? It's David. We identify with that. It's the, it's the us versus them. Ra, David. That anointing that rested on David's life at the end of David's life is passed off to his son Solomon. And when the anointing, the same anointing that rested on David the warrior king, when that anointing is put upon the new vessel, a new generation, put upon Solomon... That same warrior anointing that, that kicked butt and took names and advanced the kingdom with raw, that same anointing suddenly becomes the anointing for peace in the world. That same anointing that was the warrior anointing suddenly is transformed from we're going to, to take the world by a sword to Solomon negotiating business and creating peace and prosperity for the whole world. Solomon uses his brain instead of the sword. It says that he is the wisest person ever to, to walk the earth, that no one existed like him beforehand nor afterwards, that the presence of God came upon him and anointed him with wisdom. Solomon becomes the wealthiest, so wealthy, such prosperity, the whole world wants to come sit at his feet, listening to what he has to say. You know, uh, they have so much silver that it's trash. They have so much gold that's just piled up in the streets. They don't even know what to do with it. Solomon fortifies all the trade routes that are going through Israel. He taxes the whole world, and everybody in the world likes it. It doesn't matter. They don't care. They just want to be around him. They want the influence of Israel in their nation. They want the influence. What they see God doing in that people, they want it in their lives. That's what's going on. Now, Solomon has an issue because he perverts the way of worship through intermarrying and allowing his one of 700 wives, which is a whole other sermon. Okay? But he allows his care for his spouses to bring perversion to the worship system and allows idols to be brought into Israel and it ends up being a problem. And at the end of Solomon's life, the transition is going to happen again where Solomon's going to pass the anointing from his generation to the next generation. It's going to fall to his son Rehoboam. And God comes to one of Solomon's servants and says, I need to discipline Israel. Because they have brought the worship of all these other gods into the culture, perverted their influence in the world. Because they have allowed the perversion of other gods into their influence, 
The influence in the world is no longer pure. We're going to have to divide the kingdom up. And he's going to give it to a man named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was a warrior. And God's going to break apart the kingdom. He's going to give one tribe, Judah, to Rehoboam. And he's going to give ten tribes to Jeroboam. Jeroboam was no royal descent. He's another David-like person. It says that he was a warrior, that he, success, he was successfully this warrior, and God saw him, and Solomon saw him, and promoted him right away, and made him a man of influence. And a prophet comes to Jeroboam and says, because Solomon brought the worship of other gods into our nation, we have to divide the nation. God's going to do this work. And this is where we pick off here. This is 1 Kings 11. Verse 35, 1 Kings eleven thirty-five. I will take the kingdom from Solomon's son's hand, and I'm going to give it to you, Jeroboam, ten tribes. His son, I'm going to give one tribe, so that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name on. I'm going to take you, and you shall reign over whatever you desire. This is the blank check. You'll be king over Israel, verse 38. Then it will be that if you will listen to all that I command you, if you walk in my ways, if you do what is right in my sight and observe my statutes, my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you into an enduring house just as I did David. And I'm going to give Israel to you. It's the same situation that David faced. Another man owned the kingdom, and God was going to give it to somebody, a, a warrior son, outside of the family line. Jeroboam, if you will serve the Lord, then I'll establish you like I established David. Isn't it interesting that God isn't loyal to a family line? That God's looking for a heart that will prove faithful to him. Passionate. All totally belongs to him. That's what God's looking for. God's looking at your heart. And he's wanting. If you are willing to serve him, to give yourself wholeheartedly to him, you'll be his champion. He'll use you so powerfully in life. You're saying, I don't have any opportunities. Either to David, either to Jeroboam. But God took him from obscurity and made him king. Boom. Overnight. Verse 40, after this happened, after the prophet spoke to Jeremiah or uh, Jeroboam, verse 40, Solomon sought, therefore, to put Jeroboam to death. But Jeroboam arose and fled down to Egypt. Same story repeated, isn't it? Solomon's going to spend the rest of his life trying to kill this kid who got a promise. What's the deal? Why is it that if God's using you so powerfully, if somebody else starts to get used, that you become threatened by it? I don't know what it is. It happens in every leader. It's a test. It's happened to me several times. It's happened to other leaders, people that I've followed. God shows up in your life, and he begins to anoint you and doing something powerful, and next thing you know, it's feeling threatening to people that are already doing something. Why? It's so weird. Don't you know? That was a very Minnesotan thing to say. Don't you know? Don't you know that there's enough to go around? Don't you know that there's a whole world that needs to be saved? Don't you know that the blood of Jesus and the victory of Jesus is enough to bless you and your household as well as raise others up and bless them as well? I, I don't know why. Why is there the need to control? Can you ask yourself that question? Why do I feel threatened by somebody else's success and why do I feel like I need to control it? I'm talking to myself. These are I always preach lessons that the Lord teaches me. That's how I preach. If you're looking for something else, you're going to have to go someplace else because that's how I do it. Right? I'm breaking a piece off of my own life. I've done this test. I've passed this test many times. There's no threat in me anymore. And the reason there's no threat anymore is because the scarcity thing has been dealt with. I'm telling you, you've got to deal with the scarcity thing. You can't be afraid of someone else's success. Fear is a terrible counselor. Why are you afraid? Look at this. Verse 40, Solomon tries to kill Jeroboam. Okay, 
Fast forward the story. Solomon dies. Rehoboam is going to be made king. It's going to be coron- the coronation is going to happen at Shechem, chapter 12, verse 1. When Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard about this, he was living down in Egypt where he had fled. Verse 3, they, the people, sent to him and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came up and spoke to Rehoboam. And so Jeroboam goes as the people's representative and is going to talk to Rehoboam, the future king. He's being commissioned, being set into place. Rehoboam is Solomon's son. And all Israel comes to Rehoboam, the the king, the future king, and says to him, listen, your dad worked us to the bone. We're wore out. We have all this prosperity. The whole world knows Israel. The whole world has been influenced. But we need you to lighten the load. We would like to, you know, work for our own farms. We would like to, you know... Not just work for the man's vision. We'd like to have a little vision ourselves. It happens in church history as well. You've got a powerful pastor that enslaves the people to accomplish their vision, and it works for one season, but if you try to keep going like that, eventually it's going to burn a church out. There are times and seasons where these things are successful and they work, but in the meantime, listen to this. You've got to catch this this morning. The people come to Rehoboam and they say, have empathy on us. We've been working hard. We need you to lighten the load. Have empathy for our situation. Rehoboam says, give me three days and then come back and we'll talk about it. Rehoboam goes to the elders of Israel and asks their counsel and the elders of Israel say this, if you will listen to the people in this one moment, if you'll have empathy for their situation, if you'll hear the voice of the people in this one instance, the people in unison are crying out, please hear us. If you'll listen to them, if you'll have empathy in this one thing right now, it's a very public event. It's a very noticeable situation. You have to have empathy in this one situation. Why? Because it's on TV. If you have empathy in this one situation, then they'll be your servant forever. They'll see your heart, they'll honor your leadership, and boom, we're moving forward. Rehoboam goes away from the elders' council and goes to his friends and says, what would you have me do? And his friends go, You should be like David in this situation. You should threaten them. You should stand up and be the man. You should declare your authority. No one's going to push us around. How dare you step on the ability for the king to do whatever he wants? How dare you come against what the king wants? How dare you... I'm not just going to whip you with whips. I'm going to whip you with scorpions. I don't know what the heck whipping with scorpions would be like, but I bet it would be terrible, I guess. (laughs) And Rehoboam listens to the counsel of his friends, the younger generation. He, He listens to the counsel of people that weren't having empathy, but instead were just thinking about themselves. Rehoboam comes back to the people and says, he repeats the words of the young ones. He goes, you think my dad was bad? You think my dad was a man of discipline? Just wait till I'm in charge. And the people go like this. What do we have to do with David? Every man to his field. Forget you. We're done with you. We're no longer going to listen to the house of Judah. Why would the house of Judah have any voice over the people of Israel? Why does the house of Judah have any influence over that? What do we have to do with you? Who is David anyway? Okay, I want you to hear prophetically what that is saying. Judah is the word for praise. Why would we listen to the influence of praise? Why would we listen to the house of worship? Why would we, the people of Israel, allow the influence of the house of praise to determine what we're going to do in the future? Why would we allow ourselves to be led by a house of praise? 
when it's unwilling to be empathetic in a moment where people's voices are being lifted and in unison are asking for empathy. And instead of hearing the voice of the people in an instance, are choosing themselves and their rights over the voice of the people. I don't know if you understand what I am saying right now, but the church is in this moment. It's a critical moment. <laughs> it, ain't, it ain't political. We're undermining our own voice in society right now. When we choose to not be empathetic to the voice of the people, listen, I know it's in fear. I know people are in fear. That's the whole point. People are afraid. Do you understand that when people are afraid, they're vulnerable? Do you understand when people are afraid, they begin to react and they're responding out of self-preservation and protection? And if we choose the voice of praise to not be empathetic to that in a moment of crisis, do you know what happens? They go like this. Why would we let you have influence on us? You clearly don't care. We're cutting our own voice off for future generations right now. What are we doing? It's for liberty. No, it ain't. No, it ain't. It's for freedom. Okay, well then why is it that you're making that decision out of fear? You're making the same decision. It's fear. We're afraid to be controlled. We're afraid of injecting something in our body we don't know about. We're afraid of somebody's telling us what to do. We're afraid. We're afraid. Fear is causing our decisions to be perverted. Fear is getting us to try to attempt to control circumstances instead of trust. There's all this quagmire. I ain't saying one's right and one's wrong. That's not my sermon today. My sermon is you can't be in fear and make good decisions. Fear is a terrible coach. Fear is a terrible guide. Fear doesn't lead to righteous decisions. And it doesn't lead to empowering leaders. Fear causes you to lash out against what God's doing, try to control it and kill it because it threatens you. <laughs> Thanks, babe. 24 years will get me someone cheering me on from the front row there. <laughs> Jeroboam goes... This is, I want you to, there's so many levels of this, I, I'm not going to be able to get to it all today. This is what happens. Jeroboam runs away, he ends up, Israel goes, we don't want anything to do with the house of praise, we're stepping back, you don't get influence over us. They put Jeroboam in charge. Jeroboam becomes king over the ten tribes. Judah remains loyal to David's household. Rehoboam rules in Jerusalem, divided household. The temple, God's house, is in Jerusalem. Rehoboam is leading the house of praise, and Jeroboam thinks to himself, wait, as soon as the people, if I am going to lead and lead people to follow God, if I let them go back to Jerusalem to the temple system, they're going to end up loyal to Rehoboam. And we're going to end up, I'm going to end up out of a job. It's going to end up in problems. It's not going to be good. And so Rehoboam devises something. He says, I'm going to replace the worship system with my own. He ends up creating two golden calves, puts one in Bethel, which is the house of encounter, God's house, and then puts another one in Dan, which is the place of decision or the judgment seat. And so very smartly, he goes, I'm going to create a convenient way for people to worship without having to engage God's presence. Jeroboam perverts the worship of God, and I want you to see this today. His own fear, fear of him losing power, caused him to try to control the circumstances in which people encounter God. And his own perversion ends up undermining his promises. God promised that Jeroboam would be a leader perpetually. I don't know how it all would have worked out, but it wouldn't have ended up as this divided kingdom with a wicked ruler. 
Something would have happened where Jeroboam would have ended up the king of Israel. That's what God promised. But because of fear, he tried to control how it all came out. He tried to manipulate the circumstances. He tried to change the rules so that it was only going to play to his favor. Look up here for a second. God's promises will be tested in your life. God gives you a promise, and then you're going to have to decide, do you really trust that God's going to fulfill his promises? Or when it delays a little bit, are you going to try to take it into your own hands and control the circumstances? When it delays a little bit, it's not turning out the way that you thought it was, are you going to try to control the circumstances so that it plays to your hand only? See, this is what the enemy does. This is how fear works. It's a temptation. It's a scheme of the devil. It's what the devil did with Adam and Eve in the very beginning. Adam and Eve already possessed eternal life. Adam and Eve already possessed everything that, they, that God was going to give to them. And the devil comes to him and says, if you will disobey God, take matters into your own hands, then you'll get to be like God. They were already filled with the knowledge of good and evil. They didn't need to eat that fruit. They were already connected to the source of all knowledge and wisdom. They didn't need it for themselves. But what they chose to do was instead of being dependent on God for the provision, they chose to take it and control it so that they were in control of the process. Instead of trusting that they would always have the knowledge of good and evil and wisdom, they chose to eat it for themselves so they possessed the knowledge of good and evil. I kind of wonder right now if the promises of God over our nation for a third awakening for a young generation, a billion soul harvest. Um, I, I kind of wonder if the promises for our generation the, that, that our nation belongs to the Lord, that we're a sheep nation, not a goat nation, that, 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 that there's an enduring promise over our land and our people that, that God wants to, to use us, that there's a future and a hope for America, that, that our, our people belong to the Lord, that, that this land is not meant for what we see right now, but there's, a, there's an expectation of good that is to take place. I, I kind of wonder if, if people still believe that the kingdom of heaven that is at hand is able in a moment of darkness where there's no agreement in it, that in a moment that God, through his presence and power, could use a righteous vessel, could raise a righteous vessel up out of anywhere, that this nation could be turned, that revival could sweep our land, that churches could become on fire for Jesus again. I, I kind of wonder if, if that is still even a thought in people's hearts and minds anymore. Because... Hear me out, because in this last sort of little window of time, we started stepping into the realm of trying to control and set rules and set laws in place and attempting to control the choices of others by attempting to legislate righteousness. Can I ask you a question? Do you believe that God could, could, can, can revive a nation without a Christian president? Do you? Then why would we ever fall to the voice of fear that would get us to behave so poorly and violate our own personal righteousness in attempt to what? Control our destiny as if that's going to bring revival or not or has any bearing on our future? Church, we don't serve a God who submits to local government. He is not subject to these things. 
But yet he calls us to be people of honor who choose willingly to serve our neighbors over our agendas. It's such a weird moment in history because there are so many fears and then there are these little opportunities. Will we choose fear as the... Will we... Anytime fear... Fear's voice touches your promise, okay? Understand that if you act in fear, you'll undermine your promise. You'll undermine your promise. Promises require trust and faith. If you try to take matters into your own hands, you'll end up like Abraham with Hagar. You'll end up with a false... You'll end up not with the promised child. You'll end up with something that's going to cause a big mess in the end. So many ways for us to take this. I want to, I want to end with... Um, I covered a lot more in first service. You should listen to that one. This is uh, John chapter 4. Jesus is at the well in Samaria. A Samaritan woman comes up to him. And um, she gives him all the reasons why God would never interact with a woman Samaritan. The woman said, sir, give me this living water you're talking about. Jesus said, go call your husband. This is John 4 verse 15. The woman said, I don't have a husband. She said, ah, you answered correctly. You don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five. And the one you're with now is not your husband. You've said this truly. The woman goes, oh, I perceive you're a prophet. Ding, ding, ding. And then she comes with the theological argument. Our father is worshipped on this mountain, but you people, I love that, you people, us and them, right? Us and them. You people say that it's in Jerusalem that men ought to worship. And Jesus said, woman, I love that. You people say it's where men ought to worship. And Jesus said, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation's from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father is seeking to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is the Christ. That when he comes, he'll declare these things to us. And Jesus said to her, you're talking to him. Okay. Where do we worship? This conversation, the whole thing, is socially minded. This is a modern conversation right here. Modern in every way. Every social dilemma that we're facing right now, Jesus answered. Ready? Samaritan woman's language is filled with social issues and personal offenses. Number one, she was concerned who was right or correct theologically. Who's right? Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, Hindus. Who's right? Right? Baptists, Catholics, Lutherans. Charismatics, who's right? Who's correct theologically? Because it matters, right? It matters what camp you're in. Because if you're not in the right camp, then you're not going to get the results. Isn't that true? Isn't, isn't, isn't God limited by the sign out front? Right? If you, were you sprinkled? Right? Were you sprinkled? Were you dunked? Were you dipped? Were you smurged? Were you splashed? Super soakered? I don't know. What was it? How'd you get baptized? Right? Because if you didn't get baptized the right way, then you're out. Isn't this how it works? Did you do it in the right name? In the name of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah? Do you have to say all of that? Or is it just Jesus okay? What if it's Spanish? Can I use Jesus? Right? What? What? Did I do it right? Did I do it correct? Isn't doing it theologically right what's important here? And so if you didn't do it theologically right, then I can nullify your faith and prove that I'm right because it's a camp. It's me and you. Isn't that how the world works? This is how the world is dividing itself up right now. It's all a ruse. Look at this. She was concerned about who is right. Second thing she was concerned about, historically racial inequities. She's a Samaritan. He is a Jew. 
Samaritans were half Jews. Jewish people that had a little side thing going on and didn't want to take responsibility for it. Intermarried, interracially married. Samaritans, a subgroup of people. It's all within the borders of Israel. It's this little own subculture, but the Jews refused to go to that side of town. Historical inequities, racial inequities. She's saying to Jesus, how are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan? Aren't you from that side of the tracks? Aren't you that race? How We're not the same. We don't have the same background. You can't even talk to me about my issue. Am I in your stuff yet? She was concerned about location and access. Are we in the right spot? I mean, Jerusalem, right? You got to worship in Jerusalem. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Gerizim is the mountain of blessing. You had the mountains of blessing and cursing, Ebal and Gerizim, and the children of Israel walked through them both, and the curses and the blessings were shouted out from both mountaintops. They're at least walking on the blessing, right? So this is the right mountain to be worshiping on. We need to be here. This is where our fathers pointed to. We're doing it the right way. It's historically the way we did it. It's blah, blah, blah. Isn't it important that I follow my roots? Isn't it important that I dig into my ancestors and do it the way that they did it? Isn't that what's going to make me feel good and feel like I have an identity? Don't I need to identify with? So let me listen. Right now, the aboriginal call of peoples right now is such a hot topic, and people are so divided and in anger and in pain about this. She was holding herself away from community because she was concerned about her marital status and her past sin. I mean, how many husbands do you have to have before you're not accessible to Jesus? How many wives? What is your sexuality? Isn't this a main issue right now? She was concerned what role her gender played. You men, us women. Who gets to worship? The woman's question was historically racial, gender-oriented, culturally biased, and scarcity-minded. She was an American, clearly. (laughs) And everything that she knew were conditions that prevented her from accessing God. Jesus is challenging her mindset. She's saying, isn't it this way or that way? Isn't it either or? I want you to hear me today. I'm changing the name of the sermon, Chad, so please grab this. It is not either or. It is neither nor. You don't, there's no sides here. There's no conditions that prevent God from accessing your life. Which sin is more important to God that he would hold himself back from you? Which is it? Isn't it funny how we always pick an issue that we're not dealing with to be the big issue? Because it makes us feel right. It makes us feel powerful. It makes us on the right side of history. How about we knock that off? Did Jesus really die for the planet or not? Does he really provide abundant life, eternal life, life that wells up in you like a river that will flow to eternal life, to, to abundance? Or is it really scarcity? Which is it? Is it fear or love? Which are you going to choose? Because I, I feel like today, in this moment of history, we're seeing the church like she's schizophrenic. We love you, but not if you stand on that side of the aisle. We love you, love the hell out of you. What we really mean is we're going to love the Democratic Party out of you. (laughs) Is that what you mean? What is this nonsense? What What are we doing? Fear is a terrible counselor. When you listen to the voice of fear, you will end up 
cutting yourself off from the very promises that God has for your life. His promises will be tested. They will be. Are you going to trust him or not? When we don't trust, when we end up in fear, we try to manipulate and change, and we try to hedge our bets, and we try to control the circumstances, because if we can just line up the right amount of votes, then we don't have to deal with the sin anymore. I certainly don't have to love that side of the aisle anymore because I have a law that protects me. Is that what Jesus was for? Is this the kingdom that he died for? I don't think so. See, the kingdom that he died for wins no matter what happens politically. The kingdom that he died for wins no matter what a person is facing. Jesus' love conquers all. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ wins the day. Church, we're not heading towards destruction. We are looking right now at a hopeful future. I don't know how it's going to emerge, but I know that it's coming. I don't know what's going to take place, but I can tell you that Joseph rose up in a day where the world was in famine and there was no solution, and out of nowhere, this guy pops out of a prison and creates a system that's able to save the whole planet for food. Nebuchadnezzar was an evil, evil king, and Daniel, his prophetic advisor, ends up counseling him into the place where Nebuchadnezzar ends up making a declaration that the whole world now belongs to the Lord, and that we should only worship the Lord. I don't know how it's coming, but I can tell you that we're not facing doom. We're looking at Jesus is going to raise up sons and daughters to do great things. But you can't be fearful You must be strong and courageous. Just stand to your feet today. It's Rosh Hashanah. It is the new year. It is upon us. I don't know what you guys do as a family during the New Year's celebration. We tend to make declarations. We tend to make resolutions. We're deciding what the next season's going to be about. This next season is about courage. This next season is about faith. This is about anticipation of good. Your God's goodness is able to win the day. Your God's strength and his resurrection power is able to step into the most bleak situations and turn around. You don't have to try to control. You really can love and light will win the day. Father in heaven, I preached the best that I could this morning. Father, I'm asking today that you would use these feeble words to circumcise our hearts, that we would no longer be in fear. Father, I pray that you would come alongside the hopeful anticipation of good in each heart. Lord, the promises that you've spoken over each one, Lord, I thank you that once again we sign up with trust and we say we trust you. We trust you. You're good. I may not understand the situation. I may not understand the circumstances, but I trust you. Lord, that you are the God who turns things around, that you're the God of breakthrough, that you are the God that in any situation you can win with with any hand. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus, that your government has not decreased in any capacity and that this is a generation that was born for revival. This is a generation that's bringing reformation, all the promises that are before us. I thank you, God, that you're raising up young ones, firebrands, those who have given their hearts completely to you. Spirit and truth is what the Father's looking for. He's looking for wholehearted ones. If you'll choose to be wholehearted, not in fear, don't make decisions in fear. Give yourself to him. Trust. Worship with all your hearts. Give your lives fully to him. Today, would you surrender your life afresh? Don't hold back a little bit just in case things don't work out. Surrender your life afresh to him. Surrender your marriage afresh to him. Surrender your children afresh to him. Come on, give him your life. Don't spend the first half of your life in passion for Jesus and the second half of your life trying to kill the next guy. Don't be in fear. Don't be in fear. Father, I bless your people today. May the Lord bless you. 
May the Lord keep you. May the Lord's favor come upon your life. May the Lord be gracious to you. May he grant you his shalom, that your hearts and minds would be guarded, that you would never again be subject to fear. Father, I thank you for these things. I bless your people today in the mighty name of Jesus. And anybody that dared to agree with that said, amen. Come on, can we give a good clap to the Lord today?